Welcome back to The Lubber's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. I'm Ian. I'm Mike. And we're moving on now in our reading of the Patrick O'Brien novels. We've wrapped up Desolation Island, and this week we're reaching for Fortune of War. So, Mike, can you look back for us for a second at where our heroes had got to at the end of the last book, and maybe what's in store for us this week? Sure, Ian. Be happy to do that. So Jack and Stephen and the crew of the Crippled Leopard finally made their getaway from Desolation Island. They bartered with an American whaler for tools and supplies. And Stephen had, let's say, helped (laughs) sort of set up Louisa Wogan and Michael Harapath's escape from the leopard and on to this American whaler bound for home. And in their possession was an intelligence poison pill, some false intelligence that Stephen had planted and that we hope will be carried to the Americans and ultimately provided to the French intelligence services as a little bit of payback for Stephen's earlier run-ins with them and as pay ahead or pay it forward for his hatred of Bonaparte. And we still have Jack and Stephen having to make a long way home. They, They have to make their way home. You know, I guess after they left Desolation Island, they had to have headed off to Australia, dealt with Captain Bly, dealt with their convicts, and made it home. So their long trip home, that they're limping along in the leopard. And as we look ahead this week, they'll be getting a ride towards home, courtesy of another ship and crew. Uh, And Stephen is really wondering, you know, has any of his communications gotten through to Sir Joseph Blaine? He needs to find out if his intelligence work has paid off. And Jack... As we join the the opening pages here, is in desperate need of finding out whether his crew's cricket skills have deserted him. Danger lies ahead, though, once we're afloat. That's right, but not until we've talked about their cricket. This is going to be their cricket special. I can't wait. <laughs> I love it. Some of the best beer drinking I've done around the world has been with you trying to explain cricket to me. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Well, I hope you've got a cold one nearby, Mike, because we might dig into that a bit later on. Well done. So this book opens not quite the day after we close the page on Desolation Island, but we got the sense that the same adventure, the same journey, the same arc is continuing. And that was really nice, wasn't it? Uh, having had a bit of a you know, a couple of long breaks ashore at the beginning of Mauritius Command, for example. It's great that our heroes are still at sea, doing the thing that they're trying to do, still with their... The, the followers that we know well. We know that they're with Bondon and with some of the old Sophies and Surprises as well. Yeah, I, I love that feeling. Like you said, got interrupted by Mauritius Command, but that feeling before of, ah, I turn the page and I'm in this, although I'm in a new book, I'm in another chapter of my continuing huge and wonderful O'Brien novel of about Jack Aubrey and Stephen Matron. It's good, isn't it? We've got the regular cast and crew, almost all of them anyhow, showing up in Pulo Batang, a station in the Dutch East Indies, doing their best, despite the terrible state of the leopard, doing their best to act and look like a king's ship. They've got one remaining carronade, which I think they might have used as an anchor at some point on Desolation Island. That's right. And they're firing this in salute, and it doesn't sound like the most manly and kind of robust salute that you've ever heard. But anyhow, they're there. Everybody ashore is amazed to see them. However, there's an obstacle. 
as part of this long journey where they've been ashore in Australia, getting from Desolation Island to here, Steve has been ashore and he could not resist collecting an animal. They're trying to appear to be a, a you know a respectable man of war, but they're so decimated. But Killick is working hard, and uh, Jack hears Killick obviously quite irritated. Killick, Killick, there, what's amiss? Which it's your scraper, sir, the number one scraper. The wombat's got at it. <laughs> then take it away from him, for God's sake. I durstn't, sir, said Killick, for fear of tearing the lace. Now, sir, cried the captain, striding in the great cabin, a tall, imposing figure. Now, sir, addressing the wombat, one of the numerous body of marsupials brought into the ship by our surgeon, a natural philosopher, give it up directly. Do you hear me? And the wombat stared him straight in the eye, drew a length of gold lace from its mouth, and then deliberately sucked it in again. Pass the word for Dr. Matron, said the captain, looking angrily at the wombat. And a moment later, come now, Stephen, this is coming at a pretty high. You're brute eating my hat. So he is, says Dr. Matron. But do not be perturbed, Jack. It will do him no harm at all. His digestive processes. And at this point, the wombat dropped the hat, shuffled rapidly across the deck, and swarmed up into Dr. Matron's arms, peering at close range into his face with a look of deep affection. Ah, oh. uh, we have a, 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 you know, a look back to the sloth. Yes. <laughs> Killick in his usual state, Jack taking command. Oh, God, it's good to be back. It really is. We're not the only ones who've missed them. There are people at home who've been wondering what's become of the crew of the Leopard. And the Admiral here in the East Indies station had given them up for dead. Aubrey, cried the Admiral, rising as the captain was shown in and taking him by the hand. By God, I am glad to see you. We had given you up for dead. Mm. And the Admiral, besides clearly being an old shipmate and an old friend of Jack's, is here to play an excellent role in a story, which is to be the the target for some expository dialogue as Aubrey <laughs> goes ahead and gives the Admiral his report on the Desolation Island story, where we've got to before and uh, and the state of the ship right now. And we've got to keep aware, I think, that Patrick O'Brien's doing a decent job making sure that the novels stand alone. He's doing a really a reasonably subtle job, I would say, of getting some of the exposition and some of the kind of character introductions into these opening few paragraphs so that the newbies to the canon get caught up to speed and the rest of us don't feel too much like we're waiting around. And we get some great dialogue from the Admiral here. He says, by God, I thought you had lost the number of your mess long ago, lying somewhere in a thousand fathoms and Mrs. Aubrey crying her pretty eyes out, which is oddly kind of <laughs> simultaneously saying, I thought you were dead, which is what this thing, losing the number of your mess refers to. And it's a pretty gross and tactless thing to remind Jack that his wife at some point will have thought that he he was lost and will be will have been home in a state of grief but now this is the first sign the first foreshadowing that communication has reached the rest of the world about what's happened to the leopard i had a note from her not a couple of months ago begging me to send some things on books and stockings i sent them on to new holland which is australia poor lady i thought she'd been knitting for a corpse and yes he said rummaging in the pages here we are yeah it was so kind of the Admiral in a, in a funny uh, roundabout way. He produces this note, and I just love, Jack looks at the note and sees Sophie's handwriting. And all of a sudden, uh, O'Brien writes, the sight of that familiar hand struck Jack with astonishing force. 
and for a moment he could have sworn he heard her voice. For this moment, it was as though he were in the breakfast parlor at Ashgrove Cottage in Hampshire, half the world away, and as though she were there on the other side of the table, tall, gentle, lovely, so wholly a part of himself. I just, uh, I, I, I was really slayed by that passage. I love that. It's beautiful, isn't it? And it brings us back to the part of Jack's character, which is that he's married and very, very much in love still with Sophie. And he's been apart from her for so long. The other thing that's wholly a part of himself, I think, is part of Jack's character that we now get a little hint of, which is that he his eye still roves from time to time. So female company is at the front of his mind. He's distracted by the serving girls who bring in <laughs> champagne and cakes. He's distracted by a, a more or less bared bosom that he gets to set eyes on for the first time in a very long time. And Mike, he notices a smell. And this is playing all the way back to the story of post-captain when Stephen and Jack were rivals for the affections of Diana Villiers and there was a bottle of French scent that I think Jack had bought for Diana. And this idea of the smell was brought into the story over and over again as a reminder of the attraction of women and of that woman in particular. And Aubrey, as he's noticing this partially clad girl, notices that they brought with them a waft of ambergris and musk, perhaps of cloves too, and nutmeg. So he's getting a, an, an East Indies version of uh, of the scent of a woman. Well, I'm sure his physician, Dr. Matron, would be well pleased that his animal spirits appear to have aroused a bit here. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. After such a hard time getting from over there to over here. Yeah, for sure. And we're going to get turned around pretty quickly. The Admiral tells Jack there's a ship waiting to take him home. La Flèche, he says, that's the name of the ship. La Flèche is due from Bombay. Captain York has her. She just touches here. Time to pick up my dispatches. Then she flies home as quick as an arrow. As quick as an arrow, Aubrey. Yes, sir. Flèche is the French word for arrow, Aubrey. Oh, indeed. <laughs> I was not aware. Very good, sir. Capital. I shall repeat that. So, <laughs> so we know that Jack loves his own wit, but he's also a bit cloth-eared for other people's wit. <laughs> Even wit that's relatively simple, like the Admiral's. Well, but I love that the Admiral picked right up on it because, as Jack says, I should repeat that. The Admiral says, I dare say you well and pass it off as your own, too. (laughs) And then this gentle needling between the Admiral and Aubrey goes on. And uh, the Admiral says, well, of course, I'll have to press all of your men and assign them to cruise here because we're terribly short staffed. Maybe you can have the doctor and maybe a servant. And Jack really goes off on one with the Admiral about the immemorial custom of the service, and they have this big stand-up row, which which is always, I think, hinted that it's it's actually quite a friendly row because they know each other. Right. The, the Admiral makes a joke about the Bible. I think Jack earlier on had passed off one of his slightly misjudged remarks of being a, a mention of the Bible, and the Admiral says, oh, you remind me of that other sodomite. Right. <laughs> sodomite, <laughs> sir. <laughs> Oh. oh yes, neither. Oh, Abraham. That's right. The one who was <laughs> the one who wrangled over Sodom and Gomorrah. Right. <laughs> so in the end, then the Admiral caves in, and Jack's able to keep hold of not only Stephen but Babington and his other midshipmen, and Bond and his coxswain too. Yeah. So meanwhile, then Mike Stevens got some catching up to do with the local intelligence community. He does. It's interesting. You know, it, we, we left you for dead. 
Uh, we we didn't know you were coming back. By the way, here's a letter for Stephen Matron. <laughs> you have to go yeah, exactly. be my politico, <laughs> Mr. Wallace. So it's fascinating as as we watch Stephen rise in this world. Yeah. Okay, the leopard's gone, but we got to get to Matron. But yeah. we've got Mr. Wallace, who's Sir Joseph Blaine's head of intelligence for that region, needs to catch up with Stephen. And and Stephen wants to find out what's been going on, what's happened and everything. So Matron goes to visit Wallace and Brian Wilson, our guest last week, mentioned his greeting, which which takes you a bit by surprise. Stephen walks in, they exchange pleasantries, and then Stephen looks up and says, Well, Wallace, tell me, how is your penis? And so this is this is not kind of what I expected in a Patrick O'Brien book. No. I, I was a little like, what? What's he saying? But but apparently there was good rationale behind that. Yes. Stephen had done this surgery, uh, without being too delicate about it, to enable Wallace to pass for a circumcised Jew. <laughs> and as Brian pointed out, that's Stephen was sacrificing some of his ethics as a physician and a surgeon to help with intelligence, because I don't think any modern day physician would do that operation just just for the sake of a, a work requirement. And it's a good sign that Stephen's becoming more and more deeply into his uh, his role as an intelligence agent and that other things take a bit of a backseat. Right. And it's interesting, as, as Brian pointed out last week, they get into this conversation. Um, you know, Wallace is so delighted to see him. You know, gives him kind of a summary of, of Sir Joseph's emotions while Stephen was gone. Talks about how how happy Sir Joseph seems to have been at some of Stephen's efforts, but that yeah. he's gotten kind of melancholy at the end when they haven't heard from Stephen for the longest time. And it confirms to Stephen that a lot of his communications have gotten through. So again, Ian, as you pointed out earlier, we're getting these indications that somehow uh, some of their fate has preceded them. So we know that Stephen's letter from Brazil, where he got so much information from Louisa Wogan about the American intelligence network, has moved on. That was received by Sir Joseph Blaine. And the poison pill has, in fact, gotten to the French intelligent agents. So all the information that Stephen had made up about double agents, sources of information inside the French ministries, paid informers, mm. has been picked up by the French, and they actually have started executing people and imprisoning people. So uh, they have this thing of back and forth, who's going to you know open their hand, they give each other the proper signals. Stephen takes Wallace into his confidence, because Stephen's now thinking, you know what, I might not have made it this far, and there's a long way to go back to England. I need to make sure Sir Joseph is up to date, because he's learned a lot more from Louisa Wogan. Uh, including, you know, who her contact is in the English ministry. This Mister Pole in the uh, mm-hmm. in the Foreign Office in the English Foreign Office, which Wallace is is certainly uh, very astounded by, and essentially Stephen debriefs Wallace on exactly what happened, how he got Mrs. Wogan and Harapeth out. Uh, he also gives us a bit of catching the reader back up to this plot here. And Wallace lets Stephen know that not only was Sir Joseph delighted by all this, but Sir Joseph planted some very easy to find bribe money that would help 
lend weight to Stephen's story and indeed has wrecked havoc on the French <laughs> intelligence service. So you know, as, as Stephen heads off with a bundle of Sir Joseph's letters in hand, you know, Wallace again says, Lord Matron, what a coup. And you can even see Stephen with a gleam in his eye. He's proud of himself. He's thrilled that He's put a wound in Bonaparte's side. A little confusion to Boney here. It's a great moment for Stephen as well. He was having such a hard time down on his life, down on his relationship with Diana Villiers, struggling with his laudanum addiction. And Stephen was at a low ebb, I think, at the beginning of the last story. Maybe not everybody else, but Stephen was. And he's really pulled something out here. And he's getting a silent round of applause from me anyway. I think that's a good a good outcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anybody who's going to torture Stephen Matron has got to answer somewhere along the cannon. And we're glad to hear them starting to answer here. Yeah, that's right. So you know, the next morning they've arrived. Stephen's on shore collecting some species. Jack is reading through Sophie's letters and is a little bit worried, you know, maybe a lot worried about financial troubles at home. And Jack talks to Stephen about his concerns he confesses that he may have signed a power of attorney. He had a lot of papers that started Kimber working at home and that he actually was in a hurry to get to see and didn't read through them before signing them. And, and Stephen really is appalled. But he gives him some good advice. He says, listen, Jack, if you brood upon it now without all the data or learned advice, you will do no good and you will make yourself sick. I know your constitution. Who better it is not one that can withstand prolonged and above all useless brooding. You must discipline your mind, my dear, for you are to consider that thanks to this blessed order, you will be home sooner than the swiftest messenger. You are yourself the swiftest messenger and that therefore it is your present duty to be reasonably gay or at least to affect the motions of gaiety. You're to indulge in field sports, such as this game this afternoon until the flesh comes in. Be not idle. Be not alone. I speak in all gravity, brother, as a physician. So here we have Stephen saying, put your mind aside. Probably good advice for all of us, especially in these Mm. times until you can do something about this. And in the meantime, keep yourself busy. And luckily... We've got something to keep them busy, which you are (laughs) an expert on and which I am no hand at. (laughs) Ian, take us away here. Well, we're coming up to the cricket match between the Admiral's Eleven of whoever's stationed on the station versus the crew of the Leopard. Right, the Cumberland and the And this is going to be great because I think we hear that in the crew of the Leopard, the surviving members of the crew of the Leopard, there are some... Kent and Hampshire men, those being famous counties for cricket. And I think every English person thrown together with other English people at at some point is going to try and play sports with the rest of them. And in this far-flung corner of the empire in hot weather, what other game could you play than cricket? Now, Stephen's going to have to play a role in this. And already Stephen has a vague notion that he's going to have to equip himself with a bat And of course, this is before the era of mail order or everybody having a bat in their kit bag. Stephen's got to go and cut himself and fashion himself a cricket bat, not perhaps having entirely the clearest idea of what constitutes a cricket bat. Right. When Jack first mentioned this upcoming cricket game to Stephen, Stephen's like appalled that Jack doesn't think that he plays. And he 
I think in proof of that, brings back his own bat that he's been onshore collecting his specimens and he cuts this down from an upas tree mm. and something I had never heard of before. Yeah, but either. in doing a little research, apparently it plays very heavily in the literature of the time. Byron, who we've talked about, Bronte, um, so many people make allusions to this deadly upas tree. Supposedly the, the sap was poison. It plays this allegorical role in in so much literature. But Stephen has cut his bat and brought it back here. And having gotten Jack's mind off of Kimber as they move on to the cricket game, Stephen is wielding his, his, his upas bat with him. I wonder if we're meant to read in a, a connection between the idea of the upas tree being poisonous and Stephen having poisoned the well of intelligence for the Americans and the French. Ah, well done. <laughs> now, now we come across Patrick O'Brien's description of this game of cricket. By the way, this is a great moment for... If you're going to read any English author that chooses to read about cricket, they will probably have paid some close attention and be expressing a bit of love for the game. There's a really funny cricket match described between two private schools in um, Stephen Fry's novel, The Liarbird, which displays the, just the same love and also the same kind of P.G. Woodhouse level of humour. <laughs> I've actually got some audio that might help explain how cricket looks to an American. This is taken from sports night and one of the actors speaking you'll hear is josh malina who himself is a podcast host and a star of the west wing but they've discovered something about cricket that this american tv sports panel are trying to make sense of a very big sports story is happening jeremy if a very big sports story was happening we'd know it we do know it we just don't understand it you don't understand it you understand cricket i know a little something what i know they drink tea Dan, do you know anything about cricket? Ah, cricket. The game of the civilized sportsman. Do you know anything about it? No. You like it, though? What's not to like? They wear white, they drink tea. The guy in New Zealand got all ten wickets. Wickets in New Delhi. This is an international news story. There are countries other than ours. Yes, there is, for instance, Belgium, to name but one. What's up? Please don't ask. Don't ask about what? Jeremy was on the phone with a man who was in Trinidad at the time who told him of a cricket player in New Delhi who got all 10 wickets in one inning. This is from the World Observer. It says if you compared it to baseball, it'd be like pitching three perfect games on three consecutive days. Really? Wait. No, not exactly. Why not exactly? It says the final four batters scored 16 runs. That doesn't sound good. Certainly doesn't sound perfect. Right. In baseball, if the final four batters scored 16 runs, it'd be hard to consider that perfect. Jeremy, I don't know how comfortable I am reporting a story I don't understand. It's not that hard to understand. There's a bowler, see, and there's a batsman. What's a bowler? I don't know. What's a batsman? I don't know. Well, keep it up. Here's something. Raj Rajhan edged a humble snorter to the slips where Suarav Ganguly dived to his right to pick up a low snatch. The humble snorter went straight to the slips, and obviously the snatch was lower than it ordinarily is. Yes. I'm getting to the bottom of this. Keep me posted. So there you have it, the cast and crew of Sports Night trying to make sense of a career-breaking 10-inning haul for a bowler in a cricket match somewhere on the far side of the world. Now, first of all, we're going to encounter just what kind of a secret weapon the Admiral's team have got against the batsmen of the Leopards. The Leopards are going into bat first, and the Admiral is a spin bowler. And this is really well chosen by Patrick O'Brien. Spin bowling is a very underhand and 
skillful, but also not terribly physical or exertion-based art. It's been part of the game of cricket for centuries. Spin bowling is a kind of bowling that depends on experience and cunning. It's a kind of bowling that's really well suited to tropical conditions. So broken and sandy surfaces and humid air. Lots of uh, Indian and Sri Lankan and Pakistani bowlers have been great spin bowlers as well. Whereas fast bowling, pace bowling, would have been something that the Admiral might have left to the young fit guys from the foretop. Mm. And Babington is caught bang to rights by this really cunningly delivered spin delivery, what he calls a twister. Now, in cricketing terms, this sounds like it's a what we would call a conventional off-break from Patrick O'Brien's description. And uh, that assumes that Babington's right-handed and the Admiral is a right-handed And it's really similar to what you'd call a breaking ball in baseball, except that Ah. this ball is going to bounce on the ground and the spin will cause it to grip and bounce and swing even more wildly. So we might tweet out some media. There's some really, really great media on YouTube of famously unplayable spin deliveries, including one by the great Australian spin bowler Shane Warne. Now, it's no coincidence, I think, Mike, that the word spin is used to describe political machination or manipulation. (laughs) I don't know whether that was from from originally from baseball language or from cricket language, but cricket fans, I think, sometimes can't quite decide whether spin bowlers like the Admiral should be the object of reverent admiration or some kind of suspicious horror. Although (laughs) I'm I'm pretty sure where most Aussies see Shane Warne, that he's he's the former. So Babington's wickets tumble. First ball, that's called getting a duck. He's made a duck. Their opening batsman is supposed to linger there and bide his time and then score runs by kind of dogged attrition, but Babington's out first ball. And he he said here, Babington returned downcast. You want to watch the Admiral, he said to Captain Moore of the Leopards Marines. It was the most devilish twister you ever saw. And then we get this really great moment of Captain Moore. It says here, he walked off with a wealth of contradictory advice pursuing him. You want to dart forwards and catch them full toss. Oh, I'm going to play safe for the first hour and wear him out, says Moore. You know, you need to knock him off his length. That's the only way to play them lobs. So everybody on the crew of the Leopards got some advice for poor old <laughs> Captain Moore. And I don't think, Mike, this is just cricket. This is any bunch of sports people, especially male sports people, that, you know, this oh, is how guys God. behave. In a sports setting, when you walk out to bat, as I have done only on a couple of occasions for an amateur cricket side, this is a pitch-perfect description of what you get. <laughs> and re- replayed, I'm sure, before the bat and after the bat endlessly that evening. Absolutely. No, no, what you should have done there. Yeah, no, you should have kept your head still. No, you should have put your front foot. No, you should have played the defensive. No, don't play a defensive. No, no, pitch it right. So all kinds of contradictory advice. Really, really funny. Really well observed. Um, Stephen can't quite get the same advantage of observation he has managed to cut himself this bat he got called away to go and spend time with wallace so he hasn't had much time to see really what's going on he hasn't had much time to test out his hypothesis of what cricket's all about and what they might expect from him stephen is thinking of the closest analogy he can get which is hurling and if you are one of the 2% of Lubbers Hole listeners who are from Ireland, then A, God bless you. <laughs> you're welcome. God bless you. You're welcome. And B, get on social media. Get onto facebook.com forward slash Lubbers Hole or get onto at Hole Lubbers on Twitter and tell the rest of the world what we need to know about hurling and the connection that Stephen might have made. Let's just say that hurling involves bats and balls, but almost no other attribute of cricket. <laughs> So he's summoned. He's summoned by this uh, midshipman, Forshaw. Wallace himself isn't very impressed. How grown men can think of playing bat and ball in this weather, says Wallace. 
I cannot tell. Oh, come on, sir, says Midshipman Forshaw. The Admiral's skipping up and down. We're in a dreadful way. Mind the branch, sir. Nine wickets down. That means their side is bowled out all but for one remaining batter. Nine wickets down and only 46 runs. Mr. Byron got a duck and so did Old Hollies. You are our only hope. <laughs> Obi-Wan. You're our only hope, Obi-Wan. <laughs> and then we have some nice broad jokes about how Stephen really doesn't get cricket. Right. He'd asked somebody earlier on, is the objective to beat down the wicket at the other end? And somebody had said, yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. He goes out to the to the crease the umpire or somebody says, should you like to be given a middle, which is code for, would you like us to help you line up your batting position with the middle of the, the wickets, the middle of the stumps? And he kind of hitches up his trousers and says, no, I've already got a middle. Thank you very much. <laughs> and then we get Stephen's one moment of critting, cricketing glory, which is just high situation comedy. Patrick O'Brien says he dribbled the ball towards the astonished cover point, which is a fielder who's about halfway to the boundary. He dribbled the ball towards the astonished cover point and running still, he scooped the ball into the hollow of his hurley, raced on with twinkling steps to mid off about another 20 degrees around the pitch and a bit closer to the wicket this time. There checked his run amidst the stark, silent amazement, flicked the ball into his hand, tossed it high and with a screech, drove it straight at Jack's wicket, shattering the near stump and sending its upper half in a long, graceful trajectory that reached the ground just as the first of La Flèche's guns saluting the flag echoed across the field. Oh. oh, so that's the end of the cricket match. We never find out in true sitcom style. That's it. Blackout. Cut. <laughs> Cue commercial. <laughs> Let's just say I don't think Stephen's going to be invited back as a ringer in the side anytime soon. <laughs> so, and then just as quickly... As we arrived in the port, we're off again because La Flèche is here. That means that the leopards, those that are going home with Jack, have to pack, they have to board, and they have to find their place as almost passengers in the new ship's company. Yeah, they we're about to get on board La Flèche. And I wanted to pause for just a minute. You know, O'Brien does such an incredible job of foreshadowing, and he sets up these themes within themes within themes. And there's just one I wanted to start watching here, in that we've got this midshipman, Forshaw, who's come to find Stephen, and we keep getting these references. So when he comes to find Stephen, Sir Sir called a scarlet young gentleman from the leopard an absurdly beautiful child called Forshaw who had always been very kind and protective towards Dr. Matron. I found you at last. You know, this is where, where Ian gets up to lead up to a minute ago about, you know, you're our only hope, but he, he describes that he's sort of run all over the Island here. Uh, I ran to the hospital. I ran to Madame Tintin's <laughs> and calm yourself. Mr. Forshaw said, Stephen, how came you to think I should be at Madame Tintin or, Am I saying that correctly, Ian, would you think? I, 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 let me think. In, in my knowledge of pronunciation, then the, the list of Indonesian brothels is not high on the list. Right, that's right. right. I have no idea. You know, How you're pronouncing least, it sounds just fine to me. And I'm, and I'm so upset, given the way it's spelled, that I may trip in a very funny way. So, Madame Tatines, how came you to think I should be at Madame Tatines, Mr. Forshaw asked Stephen, and you are never to go there yourself either. But this absurdly <laughs> beautiful child, and we'll hear more about Forshaw as we go on. And as as Forshaw gets with him here, he says, may I carry your Hurley? And he picks up this 
you know, Stephen keeps talking about how this is the heaviest bat made from uh, the deadly umpas tree. And so this deadly bat, this thing that in so much literature foreshadows death, we've got Forshaw carrying it here. And we're also calling out themes of Forshaw and beautiful and innocent and everything, which we continue to strike here. So just to put a put a bookmark in and see what happens here. Jack, in writing to Sophie, talks about Forshaw as a good boy, far prettier than his sisters, though no doubt adolescents will soon cope with that. Yeah. And also, I think we're invited to see Forshaw through the eyes of the crew as well. And for lots of the crew, he's just this very charming, engaging, high-spirited youth. To Captain Jack Aubrey, he's an, another squeaker, another midshipman, and perhaps right. you know n- not worthy of very much high, high praise or high admiration. But there are maybe other members of the crew who... See, see his beauty for what it is and, and, and appreciate it in that way. Certainly a delightful young man and, and somebody who really cares deeply for Stephen. As the captain of La Fleche, and who, by the way, was we heard earlier on in passing, was a bit of a protege, a bit of a friend of the Admiral. Right. Visits the leopard and with, with very good grace, doesn't raise any eyebrows at the really terrible state that the ship is in and really endears himself. I think he endears himself to us as, as readers and clearly really endears himself to Jack. York mentions to Jack that he picked up this letter from Sophie and that he, York, had called in to let Sophie know that all was well. And we got a line from Jack that we had also heard about the Americans when the uh, leopard was stranded at Desolation Island. Honest, good-hearted fellows, Jack had said, although you would not think so to look at them. Ha, 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 bless them. And he goes on to say, there's good in everybody, York, even an American. <laughs> oh, it's, it's so, so nice to remember back when people thought nice things about Americans. <laughs> there's, there's, that's some faint praise to be damned with right there, Mike. Right. I tell you. There you go. Good. And we therefore learn that Stephen had managed to be successful again in his coup. And we also hear that Stephen had had to use all of his powers of persuasion to get Jack not to pursue that American whaler anymore because yeah. they encountered it further along on their voyage. Right. So that gives Jack the opportunity to introduce uh, the character of Stephen, to let York know that Stephen, the surgeon, is wealthy. And maybe Jack is hoping that York's going to humor a rich eccentric, whereas he might dismiss a poor eccentric. Yeah, I love it. Jack's not Machiavellian, but he knows how to work this, right? Yeah. And he knows it's it's pretty straightforward. If you're a passenger, a relatively impoverished, relatively undistinguished passenger aboard a crowded ship, and you say, I have a ton and a half of biological specimens, they're all going to end up in the bay. (laughs) Right. But bless him, Jack. I mean, we see enough of this with Stephen smoothing the way for Jack, I think. It's nice to see Jack smoothing the way a bit for Stephen, for his friend. And, you know, York kindly makes a great area available for him Sounds like, as you say, a very nice guy. But the crew of La Flesh is not too excited about this. That here's Stephen. He's got one hour to bring his entire collection, <laughs> minerals and all these specimens, including a you know a a, a a a giant squid that is decaying as we speak. That he's dragging across. <laughs> the boat leaving this long greenish yellow trail uh it, it, is, it is and and sadly all of them except for the giant squid packed in alcoholic spirits so 
He's got a couple sailors helping. They start drinking the spirits. They get drunk. Um, they're, you know, they're dropping some of his precious albatross eggs. They're, you know, things are not going well. And Stephen is at his wit's end trying to deal with this. To the extent even that Stephen, A, fails to recognize the significance of the invitation to come and dine with the captain, and B, heaps dismissal upon disregard because he t- commits this major breach of naval etiquette. When somebody comes along, uh, the master's mate says, Captain's compliments, he begs the favor of your company at dinner, having had to silence all the uh, drunk sailors first. Right. The young man reminds reminds Stephen, and that will be in three and 20 minutes, sir. And Stephen's not really thinking, I think, when he, he goes off the handle and says, I can't possibly leave my collections tossing to and fro. They can't possibly be secured before nightfall. Pray tell the captain with my compliments that I shall wait upon him another time. You, sir. Put that down this minute. (laughs) Now we get to meet a character who's going to be important for a couple of our shipmates. That's Lieutenant Warner. Lieutenant Warner shows up to back up this master's mate and uh, remind Stephen of the imposition of this invitation to the captain's cabin and says, there must be some mistake. It is the captain who invites you to dinner. And my dear sir, says Stephen, you see the state of affairs, this purgatory. Surely you must perceive that it's impossible for me to abandon even what is already here, let alone everything still upstairs. First things must come first. And Mr. Warner, I think, is a, at first willing to be diplomatic and says, I'm sure this appearance of disrespect is unintentional and referred to natural curiosities in an unfortunate manner. <laughs> and Stephen, this this reminds me of the dressing down that Stephen gave to an admiral in uh, in St James's. Oh my gosh! Not very many, not very many chapters. You are importunate, sir. You are indiscreet. You oppress me with your civilities. I beg you will go about your affairs and leave me to mine. Very good," said the first lieutenant, swelling and growing even more rigid. Your blood be on your own head. So, Stephen, if Stephen ever had a copy book. Aboard La Flesh, he's blotted it right now. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is not good. And I love Jack immediately goes to the rescue. And he just gives a master class on kind of meeting people where they are and who they are. He knows Stephen. You know, if it'd been anybody else, Jack would have completely dressed them down. But he goes down, he dismisses the drunken sailors, he starts helping to tie things down. And starts an almost casual conversation. Stephen, you are in a sad way, I see. So I am too, cried Stephen, with these bestial goths, these drunken huns all about me. I could weep from mere vexation. So much to be preserved. So much already lost. Would you have another piece of string in your pocket at all? And there was that prating fellow that would insist on my dining with the captain of this vile machine. I sent him about his business, told him to go trim his sails. So you should take us in with Jack's reply, which I think is just brilliant. Hold fast, called Jack. And Jack's remembering the immemorial custom of the service and remembering what's going on in the rest of the ship. He recruits Killick and Bondon to come and help out. He says to Stephen, I should take it as a particular favour if you were to come. York has asked you out of kindness to me. It would be a most unfortunate beginning to the voyage if there was any appearance of slighting him. 
And he's even heard earlier on that Stephen had uttered this throwaway remark that if only there was some decent string, he could be tying all of his samples up into a parcel. And here come Bondon and Killick, (laughs) ready with the string. Yes. So gently take Stephen in hand so that he can be quickly put into a uniform jacket and have his hair brushed and be presented just in the nick of time in the captain's cabin. And meanwhile, at least there are a couple of trusted leopards to take care of Stephen's samples. And thank you, Jack. Thank you, Jack. Well done. And Stephen, to his credit, jumps right in line, you know, promises to behave well (laughs) and goes to meet the captain most graciously. So I I just thought this was genius. And to have Killick and Bondit, who Stephen knows and trusts, um, you know, dismissing the drunken sailors. um, I I, I just thought that was, you know, talking about speed talking somebody down off the ledge. It was really well done. Killick had that little scene in his mind where he just knew what was going to happen to uh, all these horrible things that were going to happen to the doctor, and Jack has averted all that. And we get these characters established now of Warner, who is a bit of one for standing on his authority and a bit inclined to be grouchy and dominating which is probably in the character of a long-served first lieutenant. And we've also earlier on had the character of York as somebody who's got a bit of diplomacy and a bit of nuance about him. And it might be interesting to see how those two characters develop as the leopards and our heroes spend some more time with them aboard La Flesh. So I think there's some dinner to be served in the captain's cabin, Mike. Maybe this is a moment for you and me to go and serve ourselves with a little light refreshment while our listeners chew on a corner of ship's biscuit and we will be right back after this short break. Welcome back to The Lubber's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. We're here talking about Fortune of War, And we had just left our heroes heading to dinner with the captain. Not only with the captain, but also with Warner. And I think, Mike, we start to see, as the story goes on here aboard La Flèche and as as they're at sea, we start to see a bit more about the the character of Warner, who's not entirely comfortable in his skin and is a bit of a prickly personality. Yeah, he seems to be a, a little bit of enigma in a way in that he is just driven to move the ship as quickly as possible through the sea. He is all about punctuality. He's all about doing things the proper way. Stephen even later notices in the gun room and, and Warner at being the, the sort of the top officer in the gun room sets kind of the emotional tenant and sets the scene for the gun room. It's not a happy place where everybody banders about. As people are getting there to start a meal, Warner's standing there looking at his timepiece and then looking at people who are a moment behind and um, it's a, uh, it's, yeah, he's, he's a different kind of guy that I think we've run into before. Yeah, he is. And we've mentioned Forshaw as being this very charming and, and, and beautiful and good looking boy, child, young man. And we get this slightly awkward moment as it becomes clear to Stephen <laughs> that Warner is really attracted to Forshaw and that that is placing a bit of stress on Warner and maybe accounts for some of his irascibility and some of his awkwardness given the society that he's in. Yeah. And I think Stephen even has a little bit of, of sympathy for Warner here to think, ah, if that's kind of who he is here, you are on a ship. Stephen thinks poor man, the instinct so very strong, so very nearly unconquerable. 
small wonder he should be glum. He even goes on to say, I'm astonished that such men do not consume themselves entirely. A hard fate to be shut up day after day with such a longing in a ship where everything is known and where this must not be known, where there must be no approach to an overt act. So Stephen, what a what a what insightful guy! <laughs> yeah, exactly. How he studies humanity in this, you know, as we going back to Jeremy's discussion in this yeah. kind of laboratory, the social psychology experiment of the ship and the personnel. And I, I like O'Brien's portrayal of Foreshore as well as not entirely perfect, because this kid is a bit uh, a, a bit chatty and drops in these rather lewd remarks about. Uh, about Madame Titine's, this house of house of male entertainment, when they were back ashore, and later on, Forshaw is called into the cabin as Aubrey often summons his midshipmen to find out where they're up to with their observations and quiz them on their astro navigation. And this this innocence even gets Forshaw into trouble with Jack. The midshipmen are recounting this idea that perhaps Abraham was a very good man, a corn chandler, since somebody had said Abraham and his seed forever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and Jack thinks he's being taken a rise out of here, and he turns to Forshaw. Mr. Forshaw, what's going on here? Abraham, sir, says Forshaw, whose spirits had recovered with their usual speed. Oh, he was only an ordinary wicked Jew. And Jack fixed him with his eye. Was Forshaw making game of him? Probably, judging from the innocence of his face. Well, well poor kid, or maybe he was being a bit, a bit of a wise guy. Bondon, seize Mr. Forshaw to the gun and knock me that rope's end. And later on we get (laughs) Forshaw struggling with the after effects of getting a bit of a beating across the behind for for cheeking his captain. You know, my strong suspicion was he wasn't cheeking him at all, that this is what he had heard somebody say, or this was kind of a prevailing opinion about uh, Jews in general at the time with a certain number of people. We've heard Canning talked about before. And yeah, it's um, it's it's such a shame that his innocence is it just makes him so noticed on the ship yeah. here, so noticed by us, so called out by O'Brien. Later, when they get north of Capricorn, the midshipmen with Jack are all stargazing, and Stephen comes across and it says Forshaw's high young voice could be heard piping about the Southern Cross. You know, even oh. still, O'Brien's taking these little moments to call attention to this beautiful child. And Forshaw does what children often do, which is to repeat phrases and ideas that they've heard in the mouths of adults. Right, <laughs> with, exactly. With, without much judgment or without a filter. Hence the thing about Madame Titine's earlier on. Hence the thing about Abraham being oh, only an ordinary wicked Jew. So poor little Forshaw. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So we've got this slight awkwardness starting to build among the ship's company and especially with regard to Warner. Uh, Mike, we've got two of our favourite set piece episodes here we've got a dinner in the captain's cabin and then we're also going to have dinner in the gun room right let's let's talk about dinner in the cabin first of all so captain york who is a bit of a a high liver and a bit of a a sort of generous and fairly philosophically minded fellow he's doing his best i think to be a generous and welcoming host he does. He tells Stephen that he's sorry that his invitation may have been a little ill-timed, getting his collection all in place and everything. 
Jack takes that time to to engage in a little of Jack's only mirth, saying, you know, uh, that uh, the doctor did not trust all his eggs in one basket. Ha ha ha. So <laughs> it's, it's where he has. There are dozens of baskets, albatrosses, petrels, penguins, eggs, everything. But uh, and, and Aubrey gets choked on his own mirth. But as O'Brien describes as Stephen watching the captain and the captain watches Jack affectionately, Stephen O'Brien says, noticing this warm to the captain of the look flesh. So here is Stephen going, ah, you like Jack. You like his little ways. I think I'm starting to like you as well. That's pretty nice. That's right. And it goes further as York reveals himself to be this very cultured guy, this uh, reader of, dare I say it, reader of novels. <laughs> right. And Stephen, Stephen Jack notice that he's a big reader and that he loves music. He's a big fan of Richardson. He's really encouraging Maturin and Aubrey to try, you know, to borrow his novels. He really, he said, he mentions, let me entreat you to launch into Pamela again. Pamela, novel by Richardson. Grandison, I can't quite so heartily recommend, but I believe that even Dr. Maturin's understanding of human nature might be increased by the first two. Pray take the first volume of Pamela with you. It is just above your head. And, we get this nice little English class moment of the kind of the, the the teacher in this case, York with his collection of books and references and translations on the shelf, distributing his book collection among the learners at the table. Yeah. And, and interestingly, this is a, you know, a book that Diana has recommended Stephen before. Yeah. And Stephen, I think is pretty amazed that here is the captain of the ship with an entire library in his cabin, a library, which automatically goes below deck disappears. You know, they've got it all, I guess, set up on pulleys or something so that when they clear for action, his entire library is preserved. God, that's the ship. I want to, I want to say, oh, and I love that. Um, and you know, so Stephen's got another connection to the captain. We've got it just it just sounds like a pretty neat thing. And we have this great scene where then the captain and Stephen and Jack are talking about novels. And and we can guess sort of where Jack's gonna come down on novels here, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's especially nice to read given that Patrick O'Brien is having a little, like, I think, a little joke at his own expense exactly. as being a novelist. <laughs> exactly. It's great. So, we're, we're, you know, we're, it's it's like the film reflecting on the filmmaking, reflecting on the filmmaker. Here we are folding back on itself here. You know, Jack says that he never could get along with your novels and tales. <laughs> and, and he says that he had tried one once that an admiral had recommended and the admiral, you know, had sailed with Cook. And you can't say fairer than that. And the captain <laughs> kind of indulges him and says, well, that is the best qualification for a literary critic I've ever heard of. <laughs> so he asked Jack, well, what was the name of the book? And Jack can't even recall it. He says, but it was a small book in three volumes. And I think, and it was all about love. Every novel I've ever looked into is about love. <laughs> and I've, I've looked into a good many because Sophie loves them. And I read aloud to her while she knits in the evening, all about love. <laughs> <laughs> this is Jack the teenager. He's going, oh, yeah. You know, yes. it's, well, it's, oh, wooing yeah, and kissing and oh, bride, sighing. The princess bride, is this a kissing scene? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, but I love York. You know, York yeah, says, he's a big fan. Yeah. You know, referring to Jack's all about love. What else raises your blood, your spirits, your whole being to the highest pitch so that life is triumphant or tragic as the case may be? And so that every day is worth a year of common life. 
when you sit trembling for a letter, when the whole of life is filled with meaning double-shotted, to be sure when you actually come to what some have called the right true end, you may find the poison ridiculous and the pleasure momentary, but novels upon the whole are concerned with getting there. And for that matter, what else makes the world go round? Woo. He's a romantic. Oh yeah, my! This is <laughs> I'm with you, and I'm sure Stephen is thumping right along part of him, <laughs> the non-enlightened yeah. part. Right? And Jack goes on to make his own connection. Yeah. Um, he said, "Well, maybe maybe love's not the only thing that raises your spirits. What about hunting? What about playing for high stakes?" And York is having none of it. Uh, well, he, maybe he indulges him a bit by saying, well, maybe love is a kind of war and hunting and deep play. Well, maybe that's just another obvious connection you pursue in love. And if the game is worth engaging at all, you play for very high stakes indeed. And he recruits Stephen to agree with this. And uh, we have this, it's a really nice cultured conversation. I can't remember my another time where aboard ship with people other than Jack and Stephen present, we've had a sustained, you know, what you might call an interesting middle-class dinner party conversation. Oh, good point. So this is quite a quite a refreshing turn. Yeah, it really is. Stephen weighs in a little bit here and, and, and notes in, of course, I believe it was in Latin, how Venus inspires wars. <laughs> but also notes yeah. the differences <laughs> between love and war. And, and I love how... Just as we're in this moment, as you say, of middle-class digital party, we're going to take a veer back to remember where we are and who O'Brien is and who yes. Jack Aubrey is. You know, <laughs> Stephen says, but imagine how you know it's, it's easier to express all these things writing about the love between a man and a woman because things happen in order. But in war, things happen all at once. And he says, I've never read two accounts of Trafalgar that matched each other in detail. So now, of course, Jack invites York, who was at Trafalgar, to tell us how the ships lay. And, and he starts moving, you know, he's moving biscuit crumbs. And he says, no, 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 I have to go get the toothpicks to lay the battle out. And here comes one of the most memorable sequences of the canon as, as Captain York goes off to grab toothpicks and Stephen and Jack are alone at table amongst the biscuit crumbs. Do you see those two weevils, Doctor? I do. Which would you choose? Neither. There's not a scrap of difference between them. They're the same species of Kerkulio. <clears throat> if you had to choose, if you were forced to make a choice, if there was no other response... Well, then, if you're going to push me... I would choose the right-hand weevil. It has significant advantage in both length and breadth. There, I have you. Oh, completely dished. Do you not know that in the service, one must always choose the lesser of two weevils? <laughs> so that's an Aubreyism. We look out for Aubreyisms. It's to Russell Crowe alert, meaning that we've picked it out of the movie. But it's also a great example of Stephen managing to kind of cling onto the coattails of these naval conversations and also giving Jack the chance to play on his own pretty lame wit but the rest of the company clearly loves it god love him too i <laughs> he's just jack being jack i can't i love it and and i think even some of our dearest friends from long ago i remember kathy saying oh right you're doing the o'brien books remember always pick the, the, the lesser of two weeks <laughs> so the other nice thing about this moment 
as we've all got ashore and we're in the world of culture and good living and safety is that Jack and Stephen can talk about Sophie and Diana on an even keel without this being an awkward or a difficult conversation. And we hear that actually Mrs. Wogan had passed on the message to Diana and Diana had then written to Sophie that Jack and Stephen were still alive and that were safe. And Jack and Sophie are both very grateful to Diana for this and vow never to say another bad word about her. And maybe, Mike, this is a little bit the turning of the tide. You know, Diana's been, you know, maybe all but the very beginning of post-captain. For most of the rest of the time, Diana has been the antagonist to Stephen, the romantic antagonist. And maybe we're starting to see, as readers, we get a little bit of what it is about her that is nonetheless really compelling for Stephen. Yeah. And for Sophie to go from saying how she's a light woman to, yeah. to now come around. And we, I hearken back to that because not, not to be a spoiler, but we'll hear that line again. That's, we certainly will. Yeah. And Stephen writes this in his journal, writing to himself. He says, I'm absurdly pleased. Herapath said of his Louisa Wogan that even when she was lying with other men, she had remained his friend. And either he or I observe that deep friendship, as men understand it, is rare in women of the common sort. So I like to persuade myself. I easily persuade myself. And he's making the connection. He's kind of drawing an inference between Louisa Wogan's attitude and Diana Villiers' attitude. I easily persuade myself that Diana Villiers retains a friendship, even a tenderness for me. Yeah. God, Stephen. We can only hope. We can only hope. He's torn. Well, he's not torn between two loves, but we're reminded in this journal writing about his two loves, Diana and Catalonia. Yeah. he's, He's also writing there that, you know, Wallace has given him an update on the situation in Catalonia. And Stephen is convinced that he is the perfect man to go in and help because there are all these different movements for independence movements that, you know, if they could be brought together to work against Bonaparte and to work with the British government could really help turn the tide. And more importantly, in Stephen's mind, perhaps set up independence for Catalonia. So I'm, I'm just noticing something here. We've had three different messages for Stephen that are reassuring and sort of re-energizing. We've had York, the fan of the romantic novel who's saying love conquers everything and propels the world. And we've had right? Sophie and Jack saying, Diana's done a good thing and she's got some of your interests at heart. And we've got Wallace saying, first of all, your intelligence coup was successful. And second of all, there's this great situation brewing in Catalonia that you and only you can help with. Those are three really great messages for Stephen. Well spotted. So true. So very true. By God, after the last couple of books, he needs some great messages. He really did, didn't he? (laughs) We've got to move on. We've got our set pieces of the captain's dinner. Now the gunroom dinner. I love this. Oh, it's great. And we're going to get one of Patrick O'Brien's favorite dialogue tricks that we haven't heard for a while, which is a phonetically described Scottish accent. (laughs) (laughs) And I still can't decide whether O'Brien's got a bit of a snobbish thing against Scottish people. Because he said, I think he says two things when he writes out the Scottish dialect like this. First of all, he says the Scottish accent is hard to follow, and it was clearly hard to follow for the other members of the of the gunroom. Uh, and in this case as well, McLean, the surgeon who has the heavy Scottish accent, is is not an easy person to get along with. He doesn't have much personal hygiene. He's personally quite awkward. He's a bit of an introvert, but he has this strong Scottish accent. So I think there's a bit of a superiority complex over Scottish people in the mind of Patrick O'Brien. 
And he's also presented in this quite blunt way. And I think I've read in other books that the the dialogue of, of people of Scottish extraction is quite direct and blunt and a bit forceful. So it says here that the ship's surgeon, McLean, said little and ate noisily until he turned to Stephen and said, I hear your books, adding something that Stephen could not catch, the accent being so strong. But judging by the young man's expression, the words were obliging, so Stephen bowed, murmuring, you're too kind. I believe you're a naturalist yourself. I don't think I can do justice to all of this without sounding like somebody doing a really bad Kenneth McKellar impersonation. But McLean goes on to describe all the bird and animal species that he'd learned with his dad and that anatomy had been his joy from that day to this. But I won't use the accent here. The scouty Allen and the cloaky do seemed not to convey to Stephen the precise idea of what the species was. So he and McLean get to talking Latin and get to exchanging Linnaean names. <laughs> and I like this final point that says they were deep in the cecum of Monodon monoceros. Cecum is an obscure corner of your intestine. They were right. deep in the cecum. So a little bit of a visual metaphor there. They were deep in the cecum of Monodon monoceros when Stephen, becoming aware of a silence, looked up and met the delighted grin of Babington and Byron. We've just been boasting about you, sir, said Babington. We said you could talk Latin to beat a bishop, and these fellows wouldn't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> I do love this that you know we we've got our Scott and one of these days we're going to have to invite our Scott you know one of our Scottish friends on to to read yeah. one of these scenes because it's beautiful. You were talking about O'Brien and O'Brien's view of the Scottish that we've got a little bit later in this conversation. McLean is talking about having heard that that Matron is Irish is talking about his dislike for the English, which he assumes Matron will share. Yeah. <laughs> he, he just goes on and on about them. And Stephen, of course, you know, says that, uh, it's that Stephen had no great love of the English government and it's dealing with Ireland. In fact, he had actively conspired against it, but he was deeply attached to individual English men and women. And in any case, he did not like anyone to abuse the country but himself. <laughs> you are mistaken, Mr. McLean, he said, in supposing that the English have no generals. Uh, McLean had said, you know, that they're all Scottish. <laughs> all the good generals are Scottish. He said, they have. And the truth of the matter is that all of them who accomplish anything, such as Lord Wellington, are Irish. Much the same applies to the writers. <laughs> <laughs> now, Stephen's going to go and hang out with McLean now that they've made this connection over a heavily accented Latin. It runs very quickly from a conversation over dinner to let's sit down and catalogue the specimens together. And thank heavens that the specimens did finally get taken care of by Bondon and Killick. And thank heavens that there's room in the hold for them. And thank heavens that Stephen's got this otherwise fairly unappealing personality in McLean to come and help him. Now, we get a bit of foreshadowing. Mike, I don't know if you've seen those kind of TV dramas set in hospitals or in the firehouse or in the police station where somebody at the beginning of the episode is very clearly set up to have something terrible happen to them. You know, oh, yeah, put those life insurance documents away, hun. I'll sign them later when I get back from work after another safe day on the shift with farm machinery. (laughs) Right. We get a bit of foreshadowing and we get a bit of foreshadowing here from Patrick O'Brien of a particular matter that's going to be of importance to the crew of La Flesh very soon. So let's just break this down. The animals and the bugs in Stephen's collection are preserved or are going to be preserved in spirits of wine. Number two, Mr. McLean likes smoking his pipe. 
Number three, Mr. McLean's not welcome to smoke his pipe in the galley because they don't like officers and upper-class types hanging out in the galley. So he has to go find someplace else to smoke. And smoking is remarked upon as being generally against the ship's rules and customs. McLean's spending a lot of his time happily dissecting and cataloging the spirit-soaked, spirit-preserved specimens. And both he and Stephen are showing themselves out to be pretty awkward, introverted, sort of unhandy types who are likely to get carried away and not pay attention to their environment. And even Stephen points out that this is perhaps not an entirely safe way to go about things, warning McLean not to lay his pipe against the spirit jars and risk burning up the collection. We have McLean. We have a ship. We have spirits of wine. And we have lit pipes. I'm I'm just going to leave that there for a moment, if that's okay, Mike. Right, right. A wooden ship. (laughs) A, A wooden ship, yes. But that's all going to be okay. At least until after the first commercial break. Right. One of our shipmates on uh, the Aubrey Matron Gallery was writing yesterday. Well, it's it'll be a week ago by the time this airs, but yeah. she was just writing yesterday about how she started Fortune of War. And she's like, look, I can't believe all the foreshadowing that O'Brien has here. <laughs> You've just laid it out beautifully. That's right. So I apologize if we're spoilering a spoiler or two, but we're, we're really not. We're really not. He's, well, really, he's really laying it out for you here, guys. It's not difficult. <laughs> And it's it's not a spoiler because we're going to get to it, I think, in just a moment or two. Exactly. And it is something that O'Brien does so nicely. He does yeah. so well. Yeah. Never say he doesn't give you warning. That's right. And meanwhile, the other thing that O'Brien does, he really enjoys describing these long, easy, flowing transoceanic voyages with the routine and the ringing of the bells and, you know, never touching a sheet from one day to the next and making big, long mileage runs from noon to noon. And they pull into Cape Town and the and Simon's Town where they can water and pick up dispatches and Stephen can offload his wombat and his other marsupials. And there they learn about the declaration of war. The United States has declared war on Britain. And by the way, Mike, this is where the whole arc starts to pick up an in interest for lots of our readers yeah. from Canada and the US. Because... People based in the British Isles think that the whole story of war in the early 19th century was about Napoleon and Wellington and Nelson and Waterloo and Trafalgar. But the War of 1812 was a much bigger story than lots of British people will give it credit for. And here we go. The War of 1812 has broken out. Mm. And it's interesting since, you know, Stephen is all of a sudden this is like sort of going through every everything that everybody is going to talk about. And Bondin tells Stephen you know, about kind of the reaction. So Stephen's hearing about the officer's reaction and Bondin lets him know that the lower deck is really not pleased. Uh, apart from the regular men's, of, uh, you know, man of war's men, um, a lot of them were hands. They were taken out of merchant ships, pressed on shore. They'd sailed in American vessels. They all had American shipmates. And even though they liked prize money, and uh, you know, a lot of people were saying there's not many prizes aboard, and we see a lot of these American merchantmen, and those are not bad. Um, they, you know, they all note how Americans are a lot like Englishmen. As O'Brien writes, they were practically the same as Englishmen. No airs or graces about them, and you could not say fairer than that. Fighting the French was different. <laughs> they were foreigners, and somehow it came natural. So with a with with a with a beg for indulgence from our French friends, and 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 kind of a nice warm feeling on the American side here to say, oh, yeah, 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 our brothers, no um, if not brothers, at least cousins, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Here we are, as witnessed by this podcast, right? Yeah, indeed, indeed. Amen. Now, this gives us a second bit of foreshadowing because all of a sudden, everybody aboard La Flèche has become a U.S. Navy stats bore, okay? The whole ship has become this talking shop about what if and how heavy are their frigates and what guns do they fire and what are their captains like and how well shaped up are their crews. And even the urbane and charming Captain York has become a bit of a bore, and Stephen notices this. Now, Mike, I, I don't know if this is this is a good comparison or not, but I think for Stephen, this is what NFL summer camp season is like. Right. <laughs> if you're sitting among American sports fans and you don't follow American sport, everybody around you is doing armchair coaching, armchair quarterbacking. But if, no, but they'll never, oh, they've got to do that. They've got to do this. Cricket fans, by the way, cricket fans are the same in preseason. Cricket fans don't have summer camps and a draft to to obsess over (laughs) but we have the same speculation on the basis of minimal knowledge about every turn and twist of the campaign that's coming so how how close are we on american sports fandom here mike oh i had a a partner a, a, a consulting partner that i work with and he had moved to switzerland andy i'm talking about you god love you that uh and he had me tape the draft and mail him the VHS tapes so he could watch the draft. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, this is this is absolutely you're you're right on. And there's a serious point as well behind all of the kind of talking and stats. We're let into the slight sense of complacency that the Royal Navy has. They're pretty certain that with no ships of line on the American side against the Royal Navy's 100 ships of the line and history of victory all the way back to Camperdown without very many defeats or setbacks, taking, burning, sinking the enemy in the mass or in detail, wherever he floated, they're all a bit hasty, I think, and they're writing off the American Navy as being no cause for concern at sea. And besides, they only had eight frigates. Right. Heavily armed, but only eight frigates. And one of the new, many new frigates that's building on the British side is the Acasta, which Jack is on his way to pick up. And with Jack Aubrey in command of a frigate, what what can go wrong? This, this should be short action here. Yeah, yeah. So again, a bit of foreshadowing. We'll have to see what happens about that. Right. Fans of fans of the War of eighteen twelve, keep turning the pages. <laughs> well, and perhaps a little more foreshadowing. Stevens worrying about Diana now in America. You know, yeah. pinned down. What was now an enemy country of Ryan Wright. And he's worried a little bit about intelligence too. But overall, Stephen is Stephen. You know, he he describes the entire war as wanton, bloody foolishness. And he's really tired of everyone talking about the Americans and the possibilities. You know, he's hard pressed to escape their conversation as they move into growing colder temperatures and thin walls. Stephen writes, as I grow older. He reflected, I become less tolerant of noise, boredom, and promiscuity. I was never well suited to a life at sea. Oh. <laughs> I'm sure the promiscuity reference to life at sea, but uh, it's just even. <laughs> so while all this is going on, they're making big strides in their voyage north. They've got north of Capricorn. They've hit warm weather again. They're close to Brazil. Stephen's back in business treating sunstroke. And I dread to think how high smelling <laughs> the uh the samples are the specimens are that Stephen oh. and McLean are, are cataloging and bottling up so he and McLean are working through the night 
And Stephen's pretty sure that this new species is going to be one that they could name after McLean, a bit like Aubrey had a tortoise named after him, and that might win them both undying glory. Ah. And on this on this great peaceful night, Stephen's watching Jack with the midshipmen stargazing with Mars red above them and later on these the midshipmen having one of these gaudy nights a smoker's night and a, a night in singing adolescent rhymes in questionable taste and Stephen decides he's going to isolate himself from all of this he jams wax into his ears and then O'Brien writes his next impression was one of extreme general incoherent violence Jack shaking him pulling him bodily out of his cot, shouting, fire, fire, the ship's on fire, get up on deck. He could see almost nothing for the smoke, but snatching up a book and a writing case, he followed Jack's fleeing lantern along the deserted orlop to the forehatch. The whole deck was aglow with a rosy light reflected from the smoke and the sails, an occasional tongue of flame could be seen above the main hatchway. So we've got this incredible scene. Hoses are there. People are half naked running around. Uh, He tries to dart back down to his cabin and the scorching smoke is driving him back. Uh, And now flame is shooting up from the cabin skylights here. The sails, the rigging, they're all on fire and falling on deck. Everything is started up here. Uh, Brian writes of it as an omnipresent roar as the main fire took an unconquerable hold. The men started the pumps, uh, you know, they're running from side to side. They're all looking at Captain York and York tells them, you know, starboard watch away, easy there, leopards to the blue cutter. Everybody's into the boats. Uh, The captain and the lieutenant and the gunner brilliantly fire off their cannons because once the, once the fire reaches them, they will fire off randomly and they, they point them so that they're not going to hit any of their own boats Stephen gets run over and Babington and Bonden grab him up and guide them into the boats. So, you know, we're away. Um, it's certainly a different scene than Grant and the folks all drunk jumping into the boats in our last book. Oh, yeah. Good comparison. Yeah. That York is the last man over and the boats pull away. And what we hear here at the end of the chapter, Ian, what, a, what does O'Brien tell us? He says, presently they rested on their oars and gazed back at their ship. They gazed and gazed with never a word, and in half an hour she blew up. A vast, crimson, lasting flash that grew with enormous speed, covering the sky, followed by a total darkness and the sound of timbers, masts, spars, plunging from the darkness into the empty sea. (gasps) Wow. It was all going so well up to that point. <laughs> I know. You know, that golden, golden days. And now here we are. You know, they've got a handful of leopards in the blue cutter in the middle of the Atlantic in the blazing sun somewhere off Brazil mm-hmm. in the middle of the night in what may well be not very well provisioned boats. Nobody had any chance to put this together. What happens next? Mm. I think we might have to find out next time, Mike. Ah, what do you say to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien next time, Ian? Mike, with all my heart.
want to shout out to our listeners. Thanks for so many of you who've been participating in the polls that we're putting up there. We've got more to come. If you don't, if you haven't answered our poll questions yet, we just want to get your opinions about the show, know a little bit more about how you're listening to it, how you're using it, um, and always looking for your feedback and suggestions. So follow us on Twitter at Whole Lubbers. Follow us on our Facebook page, The Lubbers Whole. And please grab this podcast as you are now and, and let your friends know on Spotify, on Google, on Apple, and please leave us your comments there. We sure appreciate it.